Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Okay, well, welcome everyone. My name is Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. It's my great pleasure today to welcome our guest. Anna Navarro uh, is a, an IOP fellow this semester, uh, but she is someone who comes to the IOP with a really uh, interesting set of credentials. She has been uh, part of a number of campaigns, most recently John Huntsman's campaign, um, and has been someone who has advised him and others, Jeb Bush and uh, John McCain, um, on their their connection with Hispanic voters, especially. Uh, as we all know, the issue of immigration is one that is profoundly important for the Republican Party and for the Democratic Party as well. Uh, Anna is, is, I hope, going to be able to uh, shed light on not only how, a, how punditry works in this, uh, in, this, in this dimension, but also how she sees this, uh, this debate on, on uh, on immigration shaping up to affect 2014 and 2016. Anna, we're very glad to have you with us, mm-hmm. and uh, welcome. Well, thank you for the uh, invitation, and I see, I was just telling Alex, these events do not run on Cuban time, or Miami time as we call it, which is <laughs> very late. So just a little bit about myself. I was born in Nicaragua, and um, there was a communist revolution there in 79. We came, my family came here in 1980, my dad stayed behind and fought, became a Contra fighter, so he was in Costa Rica. So when people ask me why I'm a Republican, since there's not that many Hispanic females uh, left who are uh, Republicans, we are somewhat of a, uh, a species in danger of extinction, I explained to them when I was 9, 10 years old, the debates about aid to the Contras was just crucial to our family, and I remember watching them on TV, and I still remember the day, the night that I heard uh, Ronald Reagan say at a State of the Union, I'm a freedom fighter too. Well, for a 10-year-old girl whose dad was a freedom fighter, that sealed the deal uh, for me. And I also am from Florida, where my representatives have been people like Lincoln Diaz-Balart and Jeb Bush. Um, So I would tell you a very different brand of Republican when it comes to Hispanic issues than what, unfortunately, we have seen recently uh, or what the perception, the national perception is. Um, so politics was in my blood. My father has been anti-establishment his entire life. This was before it was in fashion. I, he was here last week, and I explained to him he was now very fashionable. And um, I went to school in Miami, uh, went to went to the University of Miami, and when I was in my last year of law, so I started doing a lot of campaign work as a, as a little kid, what little kids do in campaigns, they lick envelopes, they make phone calls, they hold signs, uh, real, you know, the things that, when people ask me what's the path uh, to get into politics, I say, well, you're going to have to do a lot of, um, you're going to have to do a lot of very lowly jobs and enjoy it and make that a uh, opportunity to learn and to network. So when I was in law school, my last year of law school, 
was the year, it was 1997, the year after um, the contract with America. And an immigration law that had been passed by Newt Gingrich's Congress basically made just tens of thousands, over 100,000 Nicaraguans who had been in the country for well over a decade and were established, made them immediately deportable with no legal recourse. So here I was, my last year of law school, and I became part of a group that sued INS, and then Janet Reno. And lo and behold, the judge said, well, you know, I'll give you an injunction, but you got, but it's a temporary one and you need to go pass a law. So I didn't even know what a congressional directory was. I could hardly find my way through, but um, there weren't many, you know, but it, I think I cut a sympathetic figure. And, you know, here I was a snot-nosed 20-some-year-old, and I, lo and behold, the government of Nicaragua hires me to go um, lobby on behalf of what became NACARA, the Nicaraguan Adjustment and Central American Relief Act, that gave green cards, um, and don't tell the Republicans that that was really an amnesty, to, to, uh, to all of those uh, um, Nicaraguans that had been here and also to a, a specific group through a more difficult process, but gave them a recourse nonetheless to Salvadorians and Guatemalans. Um, through some of that immigration work, I became, uh, I met and uh, really liked always uh, John McCain. I had already met and been, become friends with Jeb Bush. By this time, it's 1998. He's campaigning for governor. Second time, he had lost in 94. And um, in fact, Jeb was very helpful in, uh, in passing that Nicaraguan Adjustment Central Relief Act behind the scenes because since he was running and, we, and Republicans nationally wanted him to win, it really um, was helpful when he picked up the phone and called Newt Gingrich and called Bill Frist and said, it's important to make this happen. But then we started getting a lot of flack in Miami um, and in Florida because the Haitians had not been included. And Jeb brought us together a few months after, in early 98, so the year he was running, and said to me, we got to do this again for the, for the Haitians. And, and frankly, I didn't want to because the Haitians, the, the African-American leaders and Haitian advocates, when they saw that the Nicaraguan law was about to pass, which everybody thought was pie in the sky and had no chance, so really nobody kind of bothered to, um, to try to get the Haitians or any other group in. So they had tried to sabotage it. So, you know, you know, Hispanics can hold grudges, so I was still holding mine. Um, but... Jeb has this very irritating way of saying, you know, it's the right thing to do. Uh, when he tells you it's the right thing to do, you've lost the argument. So we set about to do it, and lo and behold, we passed the Haitian. Um, we passed a, a green card, a residency law for a group of Haitians. Jeb got elected. I became part of his transition team. Went to Tallahassee for the first time in my life. Learned to spell Tallahassee for the first time <laughs> in my life. Um, became his director of immigration policy uh, at the executive office of the governor and his Hispanic affairs person. Both were positions that uh, Lawton Childs, his predecessor, had had. In fact, he had two separate people. And a few, a little bit into the term, I went in to see Jeb and I said, you know, three things. Number one, immigration policy is federal. I don't know why this 
position exists other than Democrats like to create positions. <clears throat> number two, you don't need a Hispanic affairs person. You are Hispanic. Um, and, um, and number two, and number three, you, there's something called an ethnic section at the supermarket, and it's about two feet long, and it's nothing but Taco Bell shells, and I'm just so depressed here in Tallahassee. So went back and um, did private sector work, and then um, really just became more involved in politics a lot through the friendship with Jeb. It didn't hurt to have the governor of Florida and then brother of the president as a, as a good friend. And, when jo and, and I also met John McCain and spent much more time with him serendipitously. Um, my husband owns a hotel, which happened to be a few blocks from the home of the Southcom commander, and that was when John McCain was on his Gitmo rampage, and he'd come through Miami to go give them hell, uh, to go down to Gitmo and give them hell constantly, and he'd stay, and we became very good friends. We had done a lot of immigration work. We went back and did more immigration work, and I immediately jumped on board when, um, when he ran for president. Um, being on a presidential campaign is really a spectacular uh, experience, something, something um, you know, that gives you the opportunity to travel through the country and meet different people, and it's just, you know, travel with Sarah Palin. <laughs> yes, I'm still twitching <laughs> at that one. Um, and that gave me the chance of doing a lot through the immigration work, through the uh, work with Jeb, through the work with John McCain. I had been doing a lot of surrogate speaking, guest spots on local um, and national um, radio and TV. Um, you know, by the end of the campaign, it just it was it was endless. And after that was over, that then turned into more regular guest spots. The 2012 campaign happened, and so the Huntsman campaign lasted the blink of an eye, and. Um, and then I, I was doing a lot of guest spots for CNN and others, and it was frankly becoming very time-consuming. And I said, "Look, if you know, I, I I need to get paid for this. This is enough of this uh, of this um, free guest spots." And um, to my surprise, they hired me, and it really worked well for me because I didn't like anybody running in the 2012 campaign, so I didn't want to work in any um, campaign. And it's been uh, it's been terrific. It's a completely different set of skills, um, I think, doing punditry on TV. Um, I think folks get better with practice. I would say one of the very important things is to develop your own voice. Um, I think people can tell when you're doing talking points. And what's the point of doing talking points? You might as well read an, an RNC uh, press release or a DNC press release. Um, so I think having a, your own voice, your own personality come through becomes very important. Being well informed becomes very important. At the beginning, being available at all times uh, is something that is, I would say, you know, required, be, becoming a team player. Um, and so here I am uh, now about to uh, going on with another probably contract with CNN and um, and then doing more stuff like Bill Maher, which is always fun uh, and slightly scary. Um, and, uh, and then the Sunday shows. So 
uh, Meet the Press, and uh, I'm doing this week, actually, this week. Um, so that's kind of the story. And after that, I'd, I'd love to just open it up to, to any questions you might have about it. Well, let me, <clears throat> let me start, if I may. Um, do you consider yourself a Republican? Yes. But I consider myself a Republican without labels. Okay. I don't want to be uh, labeled a conservative. I don't want to be labeled a moderate. I don't want to be labeled a rhino. Though lately I've warmed up to that rhino thing because to me it means Republicans that are inclusive, not obstructionist. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a, I, I consider myself a big tent Republican, although I may not fully agree with some things that are done by some factions of the Republican Party. I think they're still important to have there, and we frankly don't have uh, the numbers to be able to have the luxury of saying they should get out. Well, this is this is one of the things that, of course, has been discussed a lot and is enduringly confusing to me. <clears throat> After the 2012 election, um, a great deal was said about the importance of the Hispanic vote to the Republican Party's future. And that seems to have had very little impact on an awful lot of people in the Republican Party. And there seems to be almost no kind of constituency with any kind of momentum within the Republican Party as I see it now that is that recognizes the reality of the Hispanic vote's importance to the Republican Party. Um, and in fact, just exactly the opposite. There seems to be a uh, you know, a, a kind of either, on the one hand, people who are big tent people like you described yourself, who sort of leave it alone, and other people who are, you know, basically grabbing for that third rail of immigration uh, to, uh, to alienate Hispanics. What, what do you think, what is the schizophrenia in the, in the Republican Party, or is that the right way to think about it? Is, what, is, what is it that makes this issue so difficult for the Republican Party now? I'll get to your question, but I just, you know, want to tell you that, so one day I, I, I made a reference to the feeling that the Republican Party was schizophrenic and speaking, you know, having, mm -hmm. suffering from multiple uh, personalities disorders on, on Meet the Press, and that's a very bad thing to do because then all of the mental illness advocates <laughs> and people get, get very, very angry at you on Twitter. Really? And, and yes, and to have people with mental illnesses angry with you at Twitter, on Twitter, can be, can be very, uh, okay, I take it very back. hostile. <laughs> so um, you're not on Twitter at the moment, I hope. So. Look, I think uh, right now the Republican Party, um, there's almost two opinions, at least two opinions on everything. Um, and I think one of the misfortunes is that people try are trying to paint the Republican Party in one broad brush. Certainly, there's a lot of people that fall into the category that you describe. And unfortunately, I think they get disproportionate media time. When something happens on immigration, networks, cable outlets, including my own, tend to put on folks like Steve King or like Tom Tancredo uh, to react, as opposed to some of the um, some of the different voices. But I think you see people like Jeb Bush. I think you see folks like McCain. You know what you're going to see tonight you're going to see a Chris Christie either win or get very close to winning the Latino vote and the black vote. So he's showing how to do it. How did he do it? He put money into it from day one. 
Uh, he's put money into media. He's put time, resources, done the events. I've seen him, you know, what he's been doing. Um, he appointed a senator that in his time, the interim senator that in his time in the U.S. Senate voted in favor of the immigration uh, bill that came out of the Senate. So, so I think there are some folks there within the Republican Party who have learned the lessons. We talked a lot about the Hispanic vote in 2008. It was something that really stung John McCain. He thought, you know, that he'd risked his entire political future uh, on on the immigration issue, and he just couldn't believe um, that he'd gotten 31 percent of the vote. Um, Why do you think he did only get 31 percent? Oh, it's complicated. Look, I think I think part of it was. Um, because we had just had a very nasty battle on immigration reform, you'll remember, which had led to a lot of angry rhetoric. It had led, you know, it was back when there were protests going on in, uh, throughout the country in different cities. Um, people were mailing in, the anti-immigration folks were mailing in bricks to, uh, to senators and congresspeople who were in favor of immigration reform, talk radio had gone ballistic on it. Um, we had folks uh, wanting to criminalize immigrants, people like Jeff Sessions. So it was, it, was a very, it was a very bad environment, and I think McCain suffered the consequences of, of, of all of that cacophony that was going on on the Republican side and anti-immigration side. Um, Second of all, I think Hispanics, like everybody, were, you know, there was Bush fatigue and, um, and, and, and Obama just touched something, the hope and change thing. We, you know, Hispanics were not immune to that. Um, I don't think we spent enough money on it. I think, I think um, we thought John McCain had a brand with Hispanics um, and, and we miscalculated. And we also just didn't have the level of money that the Obama campaign had to uh, to compete, and specifically, the Hispanic leadership and immigration advocates wanted a timeline from John McCain. They wanted a time commitment on when he was going to do immigration reform. And I remember talking to him about it and saying, "John, just come up with a damn time. Just give a time." And him saying, "You know, no, that's irresponsible. I've done this before, and I'm not going to do it until I know it's good and ready and it can pass." Well, in the meantime. Barack Obama had no qualms about saying, I'm going to get it done in my first year as president. And, uh, of course, he didn't. But, uh, but he made the promise that people wanted to hear, and I think, um, and I think that was a, 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 a big part of it. Were you surprised at the, the lack of Hispanic support for the Republican nominee this time around for Romney? He seemed to be very surprised. No, I don't know what I don't know what he's been had been smoking for the last year. If he, if he, if he was surprised, um, I almost couldn't believe that it was. You know, I saw a lot of polls uh, that uh, Latino decision polls that were predicting he would get somewhere between twenty seven, twenty eight. I almost couldn't believe you know you could go that low. To me, it was limbo rock. Just how low can you go? Um, but you know, really, Mitt Romney ran. A campaign when you when you look at Hispanics, um, 
it's a manual of what not to do to win the Hispanic vote. He um, said things that were incredibly offensive and ridiculous and disingenuous uh, during the primary. And then I think because he had, you know, I call it an acute case of flip-flonitis. You know, he had been labeled a flip-flopper in 2008, and I think it was just so traumatic for him because it worked so well against him that he was never um, capable of shifting towards the center in 2012. Um, he never really disengaged from his relationship and association with folks like the author of the immigration of the, of the SB 1070 law in Arizona. He said, you know, he talked about so endorsed self-deportation. I said on CNN on election night, Mitt Romney self-deported from the White House. Um, his outreach was god-awful. I think Mitt, Romney's, uh, Mitt Romney and his advisors thought that they could get enough white people out, base out, that they could still win with 30% of the Hispanic vote. I'm not sure they thought there was going to be 27% of Hispanic vote and that there was going to be as much Hispanic vote. They were, cal they were, they, I, I think their calculation um, was that Hispanics were very disappointed in Obama for not having kept his promise. You know, it was called in Spanish, Hispanics would recognize la promesa de Obama, Obama's promise that he didn't keep. So I think... I think the Romney folk assumed people were very, very upset and disillusioned with Obama, and frankly, Hispanics were. And I think for a while there, particularly early in 2012, Hispanics really wanted something else. Some, you know, were ready to, to run from Obama, but Romney didn't give them anywhere to run to. And then in the process, Obama recognized that he was in a hole, and he passed a deferred enforcement um, action to help the Dream Act kids, and that really uh, turned it around for him, and it, you know, it was something that the community greatly embraced because there's tremendous sympathy for those for those kids and those young people in particular. Um, so I think you know Romney didn't do the outreach. Paul Ryan didn't do one single Spanish language interview, and I asked Paul Ryan about that, you know, and I said, Who, "Who's who's spectacular?" I said, "Paul." I mean, I just don't understand. You, you know, you've, you've been so good on some of the issues. And um, he tried, and he wanted to do them. But had he done them, it would have revealed a schism with Romney. Paul Ryan is a Jack Kemp guy. He's an Empower America guy. He's been pro-immigration reform his entire life. So it would have been difficult. How would have, have, what would Paul Ryan have said to Jorge Ramos when Jorge Ramos would have pointed that out and then said, and you're running in a ticket that espouses self-deportation. Well, you know, so bottom line was he didn't do one single Hispanic interview. We didn't do the um, Univision debate like we'd done um, uh, in 2008. Um, we, you know, Romney did one final one thing, which was the Univision forum um, almost at the end. The the level of campaign ads in Spanish from, uh, from the Romney campaign versus the Obama campaign were, you know, the Keystone Cops versus Navy Team SEAL 6. Um, the, the micro-targeting, the outreach towards Hispanics from the Obama campaign, the same thing. Uh, they just, you know, they didn't, uh, 
they thought they could win with you know with without it. Well, how do you what do you think they think they think this time around? How is it looking? I know it's early, but what do you think the the thinking is? I mean, this white strategy is something we've read about. You know, we, white people are enough. Um, is that really the sort of the the mind of the Republican Party now? Well, I think there's two schools of thought. Mm. I think there's the school of thought that thinks that's you know that's what we need to focus on. And then I think there's the school of thought of the Jeb Bushes and the Paul Ryans and even Ryan's Priebus um, who think nationally and think, no, that's not going to happen. The way to do this is to, you know, to broaden the tent. So if it, the idea is if for the people who are the, on the white side of it, if they go for the Hispanic strategy, they lose the white. If they go for the white strategy, they lose the Hispanic. Is that, I mean, is it like, is, I mean, is that the calculation? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that's the calculation. I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, passing immigration reform is going to win, lose you a uh, white vote. Mm -hmm. They may. I don't think that. You know, there's just this notion in part of the Republican Party that the last two elections uh, we have nominated squishes. Well, guess what? We just nominated a non-squish in Virginia, and he's going to get squashed. So uh, today's the day for that, isn't it? Exactly, and 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 the um, so-called more moderate Republican in New Jersey, who did do the, is going to win in a blue state by upwards of twenty points in all likelihood. So. Um, okay, you 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 wanted the purity test, and you wanted a pure candidate. You got one. We're going to open it up in just a moment, but I, I want you to talk a little bit about Texas and Georgia. Those are two states that have, um, you know, growing Hispanic populations. Texas has been Republican now since the Nixon strategy, and so is Georgia. But there's a lot of at least speculation that both those states could genuinely be in play in 2016 or at least maybe 2020. I don't know. How do you see that sort of shaping? I think it's in flux. I don't think, I really don't think, I think it's wishful thinking on the blue side that it will be in play in 2016. Um, I think there's also some new leadership coming up in Texas. <coughs> Uh, I think in 2014 you're going to see Jeb Bush's son, George P., half Hispanic, half Mexican-American, um, Spanish-speaking, not as good as his dad, but good enough, um, and just a, a you know broad, uh, inclusive type he's of Republican. the next Republican. Bush? Well, I don't know if he's the next Bush. I think he's the next land commissioner of the state of Texas. Mm. He is a Bush. Um, and um, You know what I mean. Yeah, but we, you know, they have it's a, it's a weird family. It's like they don't. It's not a weird family. It's actually a real normal family. Um, and I spend a lot of time with them because Jeb happens to be my tenant at this hotel, and um, and Jeb Junior works with him. And this is not the kind of family that sits around and talks legacy and politics and what some would imagine. Um, but I just think there's this vocation to public service. That uh, that comes some from example, um, and some from within. Um, so you know, I think I think George P is going to be a refreshing voice for Republicans in um, Texas. I think it's a good sign that so far John Cornyn has not gotten a primary opponent, a credible primary opponent. Um, and um, you know, I, I I don't I don't quite see a a quick turn in Texas. Georgia is um, 
Georgia, you know, I think we've got to take a look very closely at who the nominees are going to be to replace Saxby Chambliss, who has been a very thoughtful and pragmatic Republican senator. Southern to the core, but uh, I, I've just, I've never heard Saxby engage in some of the uh, angry rhetoric that I've heard others engage, and I'm frankly sorry to see him go. I thought he was one of the one of the very good senators. You think a, a Tea Party senator prospect will be the Republican nominee for that? I don't know. I, I don't know because I think something. I think something snapped in the last month as a result of the shutdown. I think for the last two years, many Republicans who are not Tea Partyers had kind of looked the other way and said, okay, we're going to, you know, let's just let them do their thing and, and, and as long as they don't come after us, it's fine. Let's, but the Tea Partiers have been coming after incumbent Republicans and uh, they've, they've really taken up so much of the oxygen in the room that they've, they've begun to define the national perception and brand. And in the last month, I've seen folks like Kelly Ayotte and a lot of her colleagues say enough is enough and we are going to speak louder and we've had it. We're not going to let this uh, go on and you know you better not be raising money against me and why you know calling them on some of these actions. So I think I think you may see um, non you know more traditional Republicans duking it out mm. more uh, more vigorously than happened in the last two years. You're seeing it in Alabama. We'll see what the result of that is, but you're seeing it in a congressional seat in Alabama that will get decided, the nominee will get decided today. Let me open it up uh, to, to uh, students first. For students who have uh, are in the room and have a question for Anna, you get the first crack. Anyone? Yes. Uh, hey, uh, what are the, uh, so what is the key to the Hispanic vote? Is it simply um, immigration type issues or are there, are there other things that are particularly potent for that demographic? You know, I think we're a lot more like uh, mainstream America than people think. I don't, th you know, I don't think there's any voting group that's particularly monolithic. Um, I hear a lot of Republicans say, a lot of my friends say, well, Hispanics, but for immigration, are all conservatives. Well, they've obviously not been seeing the, the, the current elections, and, you know, there's, there's Hispanics that are pro-gay rights. In fact, the majority of Hispanics, the slight majority of Hispanics are pro-gay marriage, a lot of Hispanics living in rural areas, a lot of, a lot living in urban areas. Um, I think we are like, uh, you know, yes, um, we know we tend to be more uh, involved in religion, but uh, we're just like every other Catholic. Uh, we lie about taking contraception. And um, I, think, I, think, I think what every group wants is to feel wanted and loved, and there's where the problem has been. Don't just ask Hispanics for their vote, but make them feel like, like they're not part of the club, like they're not part of the group. Um, I think, you know, we have to, I mean, it's a bunch of things, everything from tone to messaging to policy to on-the-ground outreach to logistics to money spent to micro-targeting. Not all Hispanics are the same. You can't have an ad running in Miami with somebody with a Tex-Mex accent from San Antonio, or vice versa. And so, you know, there's got to be the same way that you wouldn't that you wouldn't uh, play an ad with a um, 
you know, you wouldn't play an ad with Haley Barber as a narrator in uh, Boston. Uh, you know, you, you know, not if you want anybody to understand. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing. So I think there's, I think there's, the immigration issue is a. I view it. Every his, every poll taken of the Hispanic community, and I agree with this, tells you it is not the priority issue, or the second priority issue, or the third priority issue. What it is is a threshold issue. It's an emotional issue. It's a litmus test issue. Because so often the debate around immigration can turn so ugly that um, that it sounds hostile to the Hispanic ear. And, you know, if, if I'm hearing you not want me, I'm not going to hear what else you're saying about the economy and foreign policy and education and whatever else other uh, policy issues. So I think, to me, that's the role I see um, immigration playing. Questions, yes. Yeah. Um, my question was more about becoming independent. How do you develop uh, your knowledge base and how do you maintain it on a day-to-day basis when you can be asked about anything and what do you recommend? I- I'm actually coming from I'm a Canadian, so I'm thinking about it more in terms of totally different political context, but how do I make sure that uh, we're going to be public? Well, I read a lot. I read, I, you know, I cannot tell you one single football score from this weekend, but I can, I can probably spew out all sorts of political minutia going on um, today. Frankly, Twitter has been a huge tool for me because it, it, when you're on 24-hour cable news, um, you know, it's very instant. It's not just half an hour of news at, at, at 6 p.m., so you... And Twitter allows you to see what's trending. What I do with Twitter is I, I follow, you know, I focus very much on following people who write about um, and attend the things that I think are, are relevant. So my, my family and friends all get mad because I don't follow them on Twitter, but I just don't have the bandwidth to be involved in the recital of their children because to me it's a, it's a work tool. And... Um, I um, talking to a lot of people, having some um, key, um, you know, sources and friends in Congress, in the Senate. Um, I had a, um, on Sunday, I had a hit where the topic was Lindsey Graham placing holds on the nominees, on some nominees of President Obama's because of the Benghazi issue and that he hadn't gotten access, the Congress hasn't gotten access to the survivors. So... He happens to be a close friend. I can pick up the phone and say, Lindsay, I'm about to go on TV. Why the hell are you doing this? And why now? What prompted you to do this? And, you know, he'll, uh, he'll, so, I mean, I think personal networking, personal sources, reading a lot, uh, really knowing what is trending that day. And what's trending today might be very different than, you know, what's trending right now might be very different than what's trending in, 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 in six hours or even. 30 minutes. Yes. Um, you you um, alluded a bit to the you know, divisions in the Hispanic community. It's not a monolithic vote. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little more about that, and specifically about the role of Cubans, who've always been kind of outliers, and they've, they've, got, they've had special immigration treatment forever. Um, you know, two of the people coming up as potential national candidates are both Cuban, but is the, I mean, is there tension in the Hispanic? I mean, is the is the first 
Hispanic president like to likely be Cuban or likely to be someone else? Is there are there kind of divisions there? You, you're also a non-Cuban who grew up in Florida, so I'd love to. I'm an honorary Cuban. After you've lived in Miami for 33 years, <laughs> you either join them or you know you, you can't beat them, so you better join them. Um, and they cook awfully good. Um, I think Ted Cruz and Marco Ruby, who are the two you're referring yeah. to, are frankly very different when it comes to their, um, to how they um, deal with, you know, being Hispanic. Um, Marco grew up in a, and you know, I've known him for many, many years, knew his father, uh, know his mother, his entire family. He grew up in a very, he grew up in a, you know, Spanish-speaking uh, family in the midst of West Miami, uh, which is, a, you know, I would tell you 90% Hispanic, um, lower-middle-class community. In Miami, his children go to school with you know he just you, I mean he's it's it's all around him, and um, it's very much part of his. He doesn't just have the heritage; he's got the identity. On the other hand, I've never heard Ted Cruz speak Spanish. Um, you know, Marco Rubio can go and it can be can go into a bilingual mode like this, and and as and I think he's one of the most, in my eyes, he's one, in my opinion, he's one of the most eloquent orators in politics today. And he's equally eloquent and um, and effective in Spanish. Um, I've just never heard Ted Cruz say that. I mean, I would venture to tell you that I think Ted Cruz would get less Hispanic vote than Mitt Romney, if that's, that's incredibly possible, because. We scrutinize, you know, you scrutinize your own, and you have expectations on your own that are higher than on others. And I think most Hispanics would, um, I'm not sure that, 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 that the, the Cruz name and the fact that he's, his, he comes from a, um, you know, Cuban, Ameri Cuban dad, Cuban American dad, would, would counter some of his positions on issues like Immigration, but I may be wrong because listen, I remember a time when my bl black friends would tell me Barack Obama wasn't black enough. That was until he won the primary. Um, you know, I mean, I remember a time when most of my black friends were supporting Hillary Clinton, um, and, and so I may be wrong on the pull of it. But number one, I don't think he's going to be our nominee. Despite, I'm sure there's some Democrats in the room who would want him to be. And number two, uh, even if he were, I think he would have a very hard time with the Hispanic what, what, vote. How does he? How is he viewed by the Mexican Americans in Texas? Well, you know, I think um, Texas is is very conservative on social issues, um, more so than than say Hispanics from the New York area or even from the from from South Florida or or from California, um, but I think his views on immigration and his, the position, it's not only his views, he's been active in um, campaigning against it. I think, I think that's going to end up being a problem for him, and I think they may perceive him differently today, a lot of them, than they did when he first was elected. He was an unknown commodity, uh, eloquent, anti-establishment, appealing, smart, um, Hispanic when he first got elected, and I think we know a lot more about Ted Cruz in the last year than than when when people actually voted for him. Yes, 
Um, question on punditry. Uh, if CNN asks you to uh, take over uh, the news, how would you change punditry or how would you change the way in which we communicate uh, on major issues? Obviously, you've got to continue to get the audience, but uh, would you change anything or do we have the right mix at this stage of the game? You know, that's a difficult question because it's kind of like a chicken and egg question. We all want it to improve, and we all want it to change, and we want there to be less coverage of Jody Arias um, and more coverage of substantial politics, but then when you put the, um, you know, sloop of poop on 24 hours a day or you put Jody Arias on 24 hours a day, it gets great great ratings and great viewership without even costing that much. Um, so I think it's a delicate ba balance and one's, one that uh, everybody's kind of wrestling with. <clears throat> CNN in particular has the uh, blessing and curse of being, you know, not being MS MSNBC and not being Fox being in the middle. Um, I think some of the specific changes, and Jeff Sucker, who's the head of CNN, I, I think uh, you're gonna, you've seen some of this happen already, is that, that seven, CNN used to look the same. If you started watching CNN at eight and seven, five in the morning and finished watching it at 11 o'clock at night, it was always, there was always a eight, nine minute segment of blue versus red in practically every show. You don't see that as much anymore and I think he's uh, developed some more personality driven shows like um, on Crossfire a longer panel political discussion AC360 later than Anderson Cooper is doing um, and, and I think it's yet to be it's an experiment I think it's yet to be seen if the ratings if the ratings would follow how would you change news? Mm -hmm. I don't know I don't do punditry anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, you, do you feel, as a pundit on television, do you feel a pressure to be more sort of inflammatory than you may actually feel in order to sort of spark the, uh, the you know, the, the reaction, create more excitement, more heat, rather than uh, maybe light? I mean, there's certainly the impression one gets that sometimes pundits, especially on the MSNBC and Fox, perhaps more than than, than CNN. But now this new crossfire is going to be, you know, very much sort of igniting that again to a degree. Um, that that it's kind of a show busy kind of almost, a a sh you know, shtick. I think there's some of that. I really don't feel the pressure, and it was difficult to kind of establish that because I think when I first came on CNN, they didn't quite know what to do with me um, because I, uh, you know, because I'm not from, a lot of the folks that you see on TV are from Washington and live in that Beltway world. I think being from a, uh, from, from a place like Miami, in a state that's purple and that's up for grabs is much different than um, being a, you know, maybe a, a radio host show from, from Georgia. Um, and, and at first, you know, I think there was some, they, they very much expected a, you know, very blue, very red position from me. And, but the reality is, 
there are now multiple factions, at least two, in the Republican Party. One, um, which is very red, and into not compromising and not working in a bipartisan fashion, and um, and one, you know, which is uh, in the under what I fall on. So I think that if you're going to be representing the Republican Party, you need to have, at this point, mm -hmm. a lot of times I end up rep uh, debating other Republicans on TV as, as opposed to other um, to a, to a Democrat. So I, you know, I I, I just. Um, so I think, and you see that a lot on CNN with, with folks like Alex Castellanos, uh, like myself, uh, Ari Fleischer. I just don't think that that's the kind of personality that CNN in particular mm -hmm. goes for. Um, because they want the analysis. They don't just want the, the talking points. But I, I, sometimes things have happened. Um, like one time I was booked on a Sunday show. And it was the weekend, the Sunday after the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court decision came down on gay marriage. And I am pro-gay marriage. I mean, I'm not, I didn't even evolve like Obama. I, I was born pro-gay marriage. And, um, and I got a call on Friday night <coughs> asking me, well, where are you on, you know, from one of the producers, where are you on gay marriage? I said, oh, I'm, I'm completely in favor of gay marriage. I, you know, have no issue. I'm delighted with the decision. And I got a call about ten minutes later saying, "Well, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna cancel you for Sunday. We're gonna go in a different direction because we want a Republican that uh, that's against it to go up against Hillary Rosen." So that I think leads to the impression mm -hmm. that the, that uh, most Republicans are vociferously against gay marriage. And the same happens with immigration. And the same, I mean, I could go down a slew of issues where that happens because, because of the issue that Peter just brought up. You know, the ratings issue. How do you change the news? Do you give the people what they want, what, what looks, you know, creates viewership, which is that, that sparring back and forth extreme. So are we really as extreme as we look on TV? Or is TV making us that much more extreme? That's why I say it's a chicken and egg question. Yes. Yeah, I, I have a question. How much, how much do you think, I mean, we have a lot of, um, as you're talking about extremist views on television today and in politics, but how much do you think is just a function of the time we're living? It seems to me that there's like a, a real big debate in the United States right now, and, and, and two sides that really, there's nowhere for them to meet. You know, big government, small government, extending medical care, not extending medical care. How much do you think the political situation the country is living influences the way TV is covering it? You know, going to a lot of tea partiers, and, which is, you know, it's, it's cheap television, but it works, right? Um, and painting people with broad brush strokes. Or is it just the fact that media is becoming, in our era, for some other reasons, you know, disruption? changing for desperation in some cases that they're going for kind of the, the, the cheap shots. It goes back to my notion that it's a chicken and egg. I think I think it's both. I think uh, I think the polarization in America is real, but I think objects in the mirror look larger than they are in real life. You know, objects on the tube. I, I think it's. I don't think we're as polarized as. Um, as, as news 
cable news outlets would have you believe. I, there was a recent poll, I think it was an Esquire magazine poll, that showed that you know, the, the middle in America is a lot bigger than, than meets the eye. Um, and, you know, certainly I think when you go out and talk to normal people, you know, by normal I don't mean people who are, you know, on TV all the time and, I don't, and people who are political junkies and, in the, you know, in the midst of that hamster wheel, I think you find that. Um, but um, one extremist on either side makes a lot more noise than uh, 50 middle of the roaders. That's just that's just what it is. That's just you know it's uh, it, I, I just think it takes a lot more to get the middle of the roaders engaged in picking up the phone and telling their you know yelling at their congressmen or at their senators about something or going out in 30-degree weather and protesting about something or going out in 95-degree weather and protesting about something, whereas, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are very passionate on either extreme do those kind of things. Do you think, you said earlier that you thought that something has snapped. Do you think that the shutdown and the, uh, you know, all of that, Michigan um, has really, do you think that was the sort of the swan song of the Tea Party? No, I don't think it's the swan song, I think, but I think it was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of traditional Republicans staying quiet and letting it happen. You know, because there was an incredible frustration by a large swath of Republicans, the majority of seeing the agenda controlled by a very vocal um, minority. There was a great deal of frustration by traditional Republicans of seeing um, us go down this shutdown path that many of us saw as political political stupidity. Do you think that there is, well, let me put it this way, how would you handicap the likelihood that this would happen again in February? Maybe it's wishful thinking, but I just cannot possibly see it happening again. It was just... Um, you know, just imagine, just imagine if instead of the first two weeks of October, the entire attention being on the shutdown and obstructionist Republicans and Republicans being an issue and the, just imagine if all of the attention had been on the fact that the Obamacare website didn't work. Well, it got plenty of attention too. So well, I mean, after, 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 right. I mean, for the, it didn't, it got, it got plenty of attention after the shutdown right. ended. But those first two weeks, they just kept saying, the Obama administration and Democrats kept saying, oh, you know, the reason it's not working is because it's working so well. We're getting so inundated that, you know, I mean, this, the, the, you know that it's just a matter of flow of traffic. We're getting so much reaction and so much interest that it's not working. Well, you know, uh, you it started to, to crumble after the shutdown. Do you th I know the, the Democrats expect and hope that the shutdown issue will be in something that works well for them in 2014 and one how do you look at that as a prospective genuine lever and how do you think the Obamacare issue is going to work well for Republicans in 2014 oh Alex I don't know they know the attention span I'm of the American I know but the, at the attention <laughs> of the uh, I'm not sure the attention span of the you know we, look, look we're, we're, we're you know we're a full year away from the 2014 elections and you know our attention span. Uh, we've we used to have a twenty-four hour news cycle. Now it's it's like, you know, like a six-hour news cycle. I'm not sure we have the attention span to remember. So, 
And then one thing replaces the other. If I, I would have told you that, you know, in the middle of the shutdown, I was pulling my hair out and telling you, my God, we're, you know, we're, we're going down a cliff politically, Republicans. And then the Obamacare debacle starts getting all the attention and well, you know, we may not be going, we may not have fallen all the way down that cliff and, and they have their sets of problems. That's why you're seeing a lot of red state Democrats really pushing the White House on it. I think the Obamacare thing is if they don't address the problems and it's more than the website, really has the potential of becoming an issue because what you're seeing right now about the dropped individual policies, that's driving people crazy. Um, you're going to see it a year from now with corporations because I have a lot of business owner friends telling me they're looking at paying the fines uh, and canceling everybody and having folks go into the exchange instead of because it's going to make economic sense and you're going to have a lot of very unhappy people Americans out there a year from now if, if that if that happens so this has the potential of really uh, going for a for a long time. Yes. Then you you'll, you'll get your opportunity too. Yes. Thank you. Um, you mentioned Hillary Clinton earlier. I'm curious. We know so much about her. Um, my question is: Do you think she will run? And if so, will will it be on what we know in her record as Secretary of State and former Senator and former First Lady, or how will she position herself in a new way to be a national candidate? Just your thoughts. You know, it depends on the day. Some days I wake up thinking she's not going to run. Some days I wake up thinking she is going to run. Today I'm thinking she's not going to run. And I mean, I just, I'm not as sure as some other people are. I think the pull of history is gigantic, right? The possibility of being the first woman uh, president. But I think the questions about her health are yet to be determined. And I think they can be very significant. Frankly, you know, we don't know. We, the American public, don't know what her health is, um, so that's an issue. Um, second of all, you know, does she have at, um, you know, you know I, I think about this and I, you know, say to myself, my gosh, you know, this woman has spent all the, the last four years traveling in this gigantic U.S., United States of America jet uh, schlepping from one international capital to the other, talking lofty issues with world leaders. And to go from that to, you know, a puddle hopper in Iowa to talk about ethanol subsidies and eat corn dogs, it's just, it's a, you know, and, and, and attend chicken dinners, uh, five of them a night. It, it's, you know, it, it's not that easy. And, and I'll also tell you, I think she's, Democrats don't like it when I say this, but I think she's rusty. She's rusty politically. Um, when was the last time Hillary Clinton had a debate? A political debate, you know, a campaign debate. Not, not since the 2008 primaries. Um, she did, she was not rusty in 2008. She had just run a very successful Senate campaign. And she ran a terrible presidential campaign from the management perspective, you know, infighting. I mean, it was just, it really was, it was, uh, it, it was, it was a lot of lack of organization and, and, and discipline. Um, and I, and then on the historical aspect, I think to myself, you know, whether she runs or not, I think she's already made history. Of course, not the kind of history you'd make if you win, but 
is there anybody in this room who does not believe that Hillary Clinton could be the next president of the United States and that she's capable of it? Well, that, this is the first time that happens with a woman. I mean, we've had woman, women on the tickets. We've had women run. But did anybody think Michelle Bachman was going to, could possibly be the next president of the United States? Or did anybody think Sarah Palin could be the next president of the United States? So, you know, Hillary Clinton is the first woman president that you can say to your, you know, five-year-old daughter, a woman can be president. Whether she runs or not, to me, she's already made history. How would she do with Hispanics? Depends on who she runs against. Mm. I mean, I think if she runs against Jeb Bush, uh, I think Jeb Bush would be a game changer with Hispanics. Um, I think Marco Rubio um, would would be very effective, uh, maybe less so than Jeb, again, because the scrutiny and expectations on him from Hispanics are greater, and you know, because he's had recent... Uh, He's had to take recent positions. Um, but the Hispanics, you know, the Hispanic leadership uh, in 2008 uh, on a national level, certainly the Democratic Hispanic leadership was all in with Hillary. So she's very popular. Now, I'll also tell you, Joe Biden is working the Hispanic Democrats like you can't believe. You put three Hispanics in a room and Joe Biden shows up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, uh, a follow-up question about Jeff Bush. Um, I lived in Texas, New Mexico, when uh, uh, George Bush was governor, and uh, there were 250,000 Hispanics living along the border in uh, communities called colonias without running water or sewer. And uh, he didn't visit the uh, colonia once in his eight years. And Jeb just seems like from a totally different planet, uh, sensitive and thoughtful and, 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 and much smarter. Um, do you think the Bush family has any hesitation about Jeb running for the, for the presidency? Really, I don't. Um, I think it's, um, there's two Bush families, right? One is the elders, if you want, so the parents, the brothers. Um, so the, the George Herbert Walker and Barbara Bush family. And then there's Jeb's own family, um, his wife, his, uh, his children. Um, I don't think they have any hesitation. I think, I, I think, you know, in fact, I know his brother and his father, uh, amongst many other Bushes, are pushing him and, and would like to see him run. I actually think, you know, people often ask me just how much of a liability the Bush name would be. And I'm first, let me just, you know, uh, confess, I am horrifically biased. Uh, I, you know, I know the man. I love the man. I want the man to run. I, I, I light candles every night to St. Jude for this man to run. Um, I will stage a sit-in before this is over, um, you know, in his office. So I think, uh, will the Bush name be an issue? Yes. But I don't, I'm not sure it will be the negative issue that, that many others, I think it's a knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, the Bush name will kill you, you know, no more other Bush. And I'll tell you why, because first of all, I think many people don't know Jeb, um, and, and do know um, his brother, you know, that's the last impression we have of a Bush. And though they love each other tremendously, and it's a very functional family, they are incredibly different, as you just pointed out. You know, Jeb doesn't pretend to speak Spanish. He actually speaks Spanish. Uh, Jeb doesn't joke around. He's, you know, he's all uh, substance. 
Um, Jeb is, um, you know, has got the managerial capacity. So I, I just think it would, you know, his, his, his ability to articulate, he can pronounce strategy and nuclear. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, so I just think that when people do the comparison and contrasting of the two brothers, it's, it's going to be uh, much different than maybe what they expected. I also think the Bush brand is getting better. You know, you never see George W. Bush uh, involved in politics at all. You know, he just he stays away from it like the plague. He, whenever you hear about George W. Bush, he's either um, helping some wounded warrior or some returning vet, or he's helping vaccinate some kid with malaria in Africa. You know, he's he's become a do-gooder like that. Um, the father is is frail. And I think, you know, brings back a, a sense of Bush uh, nostalgia because, uh, you know, he w- I mean, this, you know, he was one of the you know, greatest gener- member of the greatest generation and the kind of patriotism and things that, uh, you know, and at 89, you still at 89 and frail, you still see him doing things like witnessing a gay wedding or shaving his head in solidarity with a child with with leukemia. So I think the Bush brand is getting better than it was um, four years ago. Uh, or, or I think it's going to continue getting better. I think Jeb is a completely different um, type of Bush. I think, um, I think he could be a game changer on the Hispanic issues. Uh, and I also think that it doesn't hurt to have the built-in fundraising network that the Bush machine does, like the Clinton machine. You know, it doesn't hurt to be able to turn on a light and have $10 million in the bank in, 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 in a week. So would you say 50-50, 60-40, or what do you, how would you handicap his candidacy? 46-54 against. 46 he will, 54, he won't. Yes. Well, I'd say that's pretty fine-tuned. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw him on, I was in Miami, I just saw him on, uh, on, on, on Saturday. I'll tell you this, he's losing weight. Whenever you see a politician <laughs> losing weight, they're either dying or they're running. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Anna.